Hello, and welcome to the So Emotional Podcast. Here on the cast, we discuss everything emotions through the lens of attachment, the nervous system, and internal parts work. We're a little irreverent and like to have fun exploring the emotional issues and dynamics that interest us. So come along and hang out. Let's explore the fascinating lands of emotions. Welcome to the So Emotional Podcast. My name is Nick Carl here, and... uh... (laughs) Uh, so I don't usually do the intro and I'm already screwing it up here on the so emotional podcast. We talk about emotions. We get through the stigma and enigma of emotions. We just try to do deep dives and talk about emotional stuff. And here with me today is my co-host this way, Angela Wetzel, a certified personal development and relationship coach. And also we have a guest today, my beloved brother, brother, father, Gregory Carl, Gregory Peter Carl, has uh, joined us today. Thank you for coming, Greg. Appreciate the uh, the showing up today. Yo, I'm happy to be here. It's yeah, good right. to uh, talk about this stuff. Uh, I'm first a little bit just like interested in your emotional sort of journey. So um, I ran into a friend the other day, and we were having a conversation about he was dealing with some addiction issues. And I started to, just in my own little way, kind of like ask questions about his upbringing and childhood and sort of the different uh, symptomology he had, sort of like putting together a picture and, you know, kind of asked him some emotional questions uh, and uh, like asked him about his upbringing. He's like, oh, my upbringing was totally fine, you know, and not not to say not to pathologize it, but just like where a lot of these uh, deep ways that we understand the world and the functions are, are our own deep uh, understandings of how we sit in the world are forged, right? And so uh, I'm interested in like the arc uh, that you have done. So so from your sort of upbringing, what uh, life afforded you as far as a knowledge of your emotional workings, and then some of the work that you've done sort of in your arc of where what leads you to where you are today. Great. So uh, I'll try and uh, draw a particular thread here. Um, obviously we grew up in the same household. We have, uh, come from a big family and, uh, I would say, uh, I, uh, there was a time when I thought of my childhood as ideal. My, my childhood had many aspects, which were very happy and, and blessed. And I'm super thankful for many of the, the good things that happened in my upbringing. But, uh, the thread of like, how did I dive into deeper, like, uh, attempt at understanding of what was going on interiorly has to do mostly with like bumping up against my limitations and wondering like, what is going on here? Like, I don't, why, why is this like short circuiting? Hmm. So one of the first times that that happened was like a pretty ordinary adolescent thing. Uh, I was living on my own. And I was between jobs, places to live, schools. And I was like, my stress level was like out of control. And uh, looking back on it now, it surprises me that I did not consult with anyone about what I was going through interiorly. Uh, In uh, what I would understand as like a Providence thing, that feeling of like, I'm at my limits and I don't know what to do caused me to try and pray. And that started a whole journey over the course of about two or three years 
starting to pray a little bit more and a little bit more and having this sense of awareness of like the presence of God, God who is the cause of all things was somehow like paying attention to me. So that had part, it's part of my like understanding of my story of my vocation, my calling. But alongside of that, uh, so then uh, when I made an application to uh, study for the priesthood, one of the things they have a guy do is do a psychological evaluation. And uh, they were basically like, hey, because of your family history and the way that you answered some of these questions, like you should talk to a counselor. And so I did. Uh, over the next several years in uh, college and graduate school, I had the, the resource of a, of a counselor was just part of my formation, part of my uh, program that I was in. They wanted to offer this as a resource to help a guy in his development, which is sweet. I was glad that that resource was there. But you know how uh, in counseling, the resource is only as like, rich as your willingness to use it, you know? Right. And at the time, I just had a conversation with a, a priest buddy about this recently. At the time, I thought of mental health stuff and interior life stuff as something to like be managed and set aside so that I could get on to the other duties of my formation, getting my academics done. I can't be depressed or stressed out because I've got some stuff I got to do. And now I would have a much more like integral approach to like, no, actually all that interior life stuff is really <laughs> fundamental to me being able to do what I feel called to do. And uh, uh, I'll get to a, a, a stopping point in this question here, just a second that, uh, so there was some good formative work that happened during some times in school, but then I, I bumped in after I don't know, five, six, seven years being a priest. I think this was in 2018. I, uh, I bumped up against my limitations again. And it was, there was, uh, an opportunity to, uh, look more at like what was going on interiorly. Like why, why were my resources running short and I was not handling myself well. That just manifested in, in, uh, in ways like uh, I just my stress level would be so high, I just felt like I couldn't deal, and I would just cancel all my appointments, tell everybody to go to hell, <laughs> right. and just sit in my house and and uh, numb out, you know. And uh, I went through a year where a bunch of my buddies left the priesthood. Uh, people in my life were ex experiencing crisis, not just people that I serve, but uh, people that were close to me. And uh, I was experiencing more overwhelm than I had ever experienced. And that uh, became an opportunity for me to say, like, uh, the way that I'm living is not very sustainable. And I need to, like, I need some resources to help me get deeper into this. What do you think, so, you know, you talked about that difference between uh, you're seeing yourself. Uh, when you were talking about doing your therapy, it's like sort of a separate thing, and now you see it as integral, right? 
Like, yeah. what is that space? Like, what are you paying attention to? Like, what, what does that consist of? What is the internal uh, space? Good. I think I'm, I don't know if I can illustrate this real clearly, uh, but uh, I think I would just, uh, so, I think you guys are both probably a little bit interested in uh, internal family systems was uh, was the one of the resources that I was taught through uh, through a guy that I started working with a few years ago. And uh, that definitely gives shape to kind of like how I understand that interior space. Right. Right. So whereas in the past experiencing overwhelm, I might have just thought like I've just got to push harder on back on that and just get it away from me so that I can focus on my work or my life or whatever. Now I, I perceive that dynamic totally differently. I perceive that like, Oh, a part of me is trying to communicate to me and I want to like be receptive to that and try and like compassionately receive that and work with it. Uh, so to me, that would be a, an example of that kind of like interior space question. I do have a question. What do you got? Um, well, so it's interesting to me, this, um, something I've observed, especially like my family is, is pretty religious. Like we grew up first in the Catholic church, Roman Catholic, Angela Marie is my name, just very Roman Catholic. Right. Yeah. Um, and I have, you know, siblings that follow those uh, very biblical name patterns. Um, I think my yeah. sisters were actually named after like soap opera characters. So it began with me. I am the first holy child. <laughs> but um, so there's something that I've noticed like with my mom or even with some of these like old school religious peeps. Um, now our family is like more Baptist and I am totally non-dogmatic, like more spiritual type. Yeah. Um, and I remember having this conversation with my mom about trauma-informed work and stuff. And like, I feel like part of my purpose here is to like help people witness to their own exiles and, and to um, actually allow people to make us a, a spiritual connection after like a time in the desert of not being connected because of trauma. And I think there can be um, this sort of idea that the Bible or God is separate from the trauma work, like somehow that it's separate or I only read the Bible and that's the work that I do, but I don't do this psychology work because that's another thing entirely. And I'm just mm -hmm. wondering like what your perspective is on that being in the church, but also having done that work. Yeah. Great. So that's a, a huge topic, right? Like, I guess my, mm -hmm. my first, my first thought is uh, sort of about the historical divide between uh, uh, psychology arising and some of its roots being in uh, sort of demythologizing and, uh, uh, de-spiritualizing the interior life. Um, but uh, that 
all that historical context uh, is not necessarily like what's going through uh, a particular person's mind, right? As they're mm-hmm. experiencing these these things as separate. Uh, I would say this is exactly why I'd like I find the project of trying to uh, uh, integrate uh, a Christian uh, what we would what we would understand like Christian anthropology. What is the human person? Uh, the Christian anthropology perspective would essentially be like the, the human person is is uh, this good creature that is an image of God has inherent dignity is made for communion like that's very much compatible with like uh, Mm. the perspective of uh, like trauma-informed therapy that understands like connection interiorly and uh, in community in relationship with others is like a fundamental good for the human person Right. Uh, so, yeah, I guess to get back to your topic there, like why in the big picture, there's a lot, of, it seems to me like there's historical reasons for why believers look suspiciously at, uh, <laughs> the science of psychology. Uh, I, but I'm now I'm thinking practically about like people that I've worked with. And maybe part of it just simply has to do with um, there's just a little bit of fear and concern when you start to talk about, you know, just the the typical stigma of working with a head shrink, right? They're going to get into my personal business. They're going to like root around inside sensitive stuff. They're gonna they're they're gonna ask me questions I don't want to answer stuff like this right right I try to present people a picture of mental health professionals because I've I've had the opportunity to work with many now as like they're coming with a toolkit and a set of resources to support you in achieving the goals that you have uh, right isn't that a principle of like client centered therapy is like they're 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 determining the outcomes and the mental health, the care provider is like there to provide resources to help the person achieve their outcomes. Right. Yeah. So I guess I try and put a big, put a good picture on it, but maybe it's just a, it's a combination of that stigma that is sort of generally experienced and the notion that, uh, And the notion that, like, well, God will take care of me. And uh, with all due respect, it's a little bit like the, I'm sure you've heard this silly story before. The guy's on top of his house, it's raining. And uh, uh, he's in the middle of a flood, and a boat comes by. And the guy says, God will take care of me. And then the helicopter comes by. (laughs) The guy says, God will take care of me. And then the guy shows up in heaven after he dies in the flood. And God is like, well, I sent you a boat and a, and a helicopter, you know, uh, to put it in a more, a more serious light, like, uh, at least, uh, 
among like Christian philosophers and, and theologians, there would be no, no trouble distinguishing between natural problems and supernatural problems and understanding that there's resources that are appropriate for those different kinds of problems or needs. Mm -hmm. I go to a, a dietitian to work on how to eat food that's healthy for my body. And I can talk to a counselor who has expertise and tools for uh, working on interior uh, life stuff that has to do with the emotions and the psychological makeup of a person. And I can talk to uh, someone who prays about developing relationship with God and responding to God. Like these things have their place and they can be integrated in a good way. Right. You know, something that I've noticed is interesting is this idea. Um, Cause like what you mentioned was people being like inherently good and um, yeah. being made in the image of God. Right. But something yeah. that I hear so often from like my mother and my sister, not, not everyone, but this idea that we're, um, we have a sin nature and it's like, we're naturally like wanting our own desires, but it, there's something dirty and evil and wrong about humanity. Yeah. And it's yeah. like a certain perspective that is brought to like, uh, religion where it's like somehow rooted in, in shame, um, yeah. as opposed to like love and goodness and potential for like, you know, resurrection or redemption. Yeah. Connection yeah. and generativity. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would understand that as a, uh, as a theological question that different Christian communities have different perspectives on. And so I started off with uh, the beginning of the story, right? Here's how I would understand the gospel. God is good. He creates good things. The human person is a, is a creature of God who's made for God, made it with good purposes. The fall is real. And uh, that tendency towards, towards self-centeredness uh, is there and redemption is real and God comes uh, into the scene and he draws us back to himself. Uh, there, there's a whole theological debate between uh, Catholics and different uh, Protestant denominations about uh, the, the state of human nature after the fall. And so some, some theologians would take this view of total depravity, that we are, in fact, uh, devoid of goodness now hmm. in our current state. Uh, but yeah, that if you ask a dozen Christians, you'll get a uh, perspective, you know, you'll get a whole array of answers to that uh, yeah. question of like, are, is the human person depraved? Well, the Catholic, classical Catholic perspective would be the human person is made good and is redeemed and has the opportunity for being transformed and uh, sharing God's life in the world. So I think would be ultimately positive. But yeah, that is a, that is a, a topic that comes up for believers.
for sure. Right. When I think of the like emotions that go with it, though, when I think about like um, how shame is so diametrically opposed from our real nature, I believe is so opposite that I, I think um, it's ultimately psychologically destructive to have belief systems rooted in that about um, our human nature being that flawed. And it, it almost like instead of looking at the redemption story, it's looking at um, ultimate culpability for um, Jesus's death on the cross and uh, actually lack of redemption for humans, which I don't really know how all that got started or what religion or like who that's attributed to, but it, it does seem like uh, it's definitely a thing that's out the there. Zwing it was the Zwinglians, yeah. the Zwinglians. <laughs> Yeah. What? <laughs> it was a anti-baptist. Name dropping. Name dropping. Yeah, a, I took a Reformation class, and so I'm just like sprinklings. The Zwinglians? <laughs> yeah. What is that? What's that guy's name? <laughs> I can't think of his first name, but Zwingli would have been would have been uh, in the era of Luther, yeah, Luther. I think. Yeah. So yes. 500 years ago yeah. in mm. Europe. Um, so when I think I have been, so just to contextualize it a little bit, when we talk about internal family systems or internal parts work, it's a way of contextualizing and giving a framework to work with. It's just a map. It's just a map. It's just a way to work with internal, uh, internal emotional places. Uh, before there is a framework, it ends up just being a morass or a sea. There is no real distinctions, and there happens to be like a lot of uh, we call it like a meshment or melding of of of, of motivations and parts. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I have exposed myself to recently is uh, when I am in. So I do like a, a, a contemplative, meditative walks, right, and. The message that I was bringing holy to... pilgrimage <laughs> of the track yeah it's it's like it's like the Camino except uh, <laughs> on over on the track <laughs> but uh, to these uh, to my deep like wounded parts that are are in a state like a physiological state of fight flight and freeze you know of really feeling battered. It's to expose them to I feel which I feel like is a deep and abiding truth, which is that like God loves you. God loves me. I am a part of God, right? To like some of these some of these deep abiding truths, uh, because I I believe that like wounded pieces of myself live in a state of shame. They're in a state of shame. They're in a sure. low state of like judgment, right? And so the just message, exposing them to like, even just the self trying to reach out in love to them. And can I, can I show love to you? Will you let me do that? Right. It's uh, like, it's like, it's, you know, whenever I'm having like uh, an emotional, that it's I, the thing that I say to myself, the spirit I try to come to myself and try to come to anybody in, if I can get to that place is compassion and curiosity, right? In the spirit of communion or connection, which I think, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, like connection is essential to human beings. It's as essential as breathing. Like we need it, right? So in that spirit of 
not in not in judgment, not in damnation, not saying you shouldn't be any way, but the way that you are, and saying, hey, I, you know, it's okay to be however you are, and God loves you, or God loves me, right? That the war that you are like a victim of is over. That war is over, right? And that you can step forward out of that. So, you know, I, you know, Angela, it's like, to sort of like your question, like, I, I don't personally run into that, but like, it makes sense to my, you know, my head of coming from a perspective of like our sin nature and that how we are fallen and uh, that type of thing. But I think that, you know, for my parts and pieces, they are fallen and they fall into judgment and they see a world where they are condemned in a way, right? And a lot of that is in like shame. So the opposite or the sort of like a, you know, a countervailing force, I think, is curiosity. It's connection. It's redemption. And it's sort of like uh, your nature, your fundamental nature is good. And you can rise into that, right? I think... Can I ask a question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Here about uh, sort of like, this is only slightly related to what we're talking about here. It's... Uh, how do you guys introduce this perspective of IFS to people? I found, <laughs> I found that it's kind of challenging because it, it, to the uninitiated, it could sound a little bit bizarre to kind of like talk to yourself, right? To address parts of yourself. It seems to me like in this conversation about what is this interior space or what is this like dynamic of interacting with yeah. these parts like, I found it sometimes challenging to explain to people. People who are already like initiated in it, I've had fantastic conversations. And in, in general, I can talk to people about like, uh, you know, be compassionate with yourself in this, ask yourself the, uh, you know, get curious about what, why that feeling is coming up. In general, I can say stuff like that, but do you ever uh, find sharing this uh, perspective challenging? <laughs> I don't personally, but I don't know. I feel like the kind of people that end up coming to me have done usually like therapy or have been like in that, you know, area in that field for a while where they're familiar with like inner child work, kind of like yeah. having a feeling that there's, you know, something there, another personality aspect inside of them. So they actually take to it pretty quickly. Um, I think anyone that's had therapy, I think in some ways already has like an introduction to there being different emotional flavors. And I think it just helps to organize and make sense of that for them. Yeah. Um, but I do know that generally what the big shock is, is like the level of subconscious material that's there, that's actively running their life. Yes. And they're like, holy shit, like this has all been here, like running the ship. And like, it's, and, and like, they haven't realized the, the significance of those things or the, the actual like power that um, those subconscious parts actually have in, um, you know, making decisions or having certain behaviors, you know? Um, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would put it that way. They're usually also surprised. Um, these parts are very surprised when they meet the the self. They're kind of like, what? You know, because yes. they're truly like in the dark, truly like not connected. 
Um, yeah. And then when they meet each other, it's just very interesting. Like sometimes I'll do some work with a client <clears throat> and we'll have a couple parts that we've worked with and then we'll introduce them to a third part. Or if one part doesn't know that I've worked with another part, I'll introduce them and then they'll be like, oh, well, I don't need to do this now because they're feeling better, you know, kind of thing. It's just yeah. really, it's very interesting. It's just like um, kind of connecting family members. Yeah, it's very cool. I've definitely had had those experiences of like uh, a part being surprised that it was being addressed, mm-hmm. like feeling invisible and then like being acknowledged. Mm-hmm. That's super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to your question of like, is it difficult? I'm like, you know, okay, this is going to be episode 19. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've brought up a couple times talking about IFS or just talking about the internal world. And I try to, cause I feel like I still have a connection into my own, like, holy shit moment of like, of understanding that it's a different dimension. It is a, a different dimension to the me that I experience. Right. So one of the guys I read a lot is this cat, uh, uh, Mickey Singer, okay? And he sort of describes it as uh, uh, you roll through your life, you have your thoughts, and you have your body. And then he talks about, it's a Sanskrit word, it's called samskaras, right? And these are essentially your internal emotional parts that interact and react with your moments as they sort of come by, right? And that, for, I think... I don't know the vast majority, like shooting from the hip, 90% of people that the relationship and how that function works is unconscious, right? They, they don't under, sort of understand that. It's like they'll have the emotions, they'll have all the projections and the reflections of how it's happening through their time, but it's just, that's just me. That's just who I am. That's how I react. This is what it is, you know? Um, I had a conversation with somebody uh, a, last weekend about uh, his some addiction problems he was having and some emotional issues he was having. But the thing that became ultimately clear to me, it's like I'm a little bit, I'm like a little bit too far down the rabbit hole that like I'm talking about in certain things, but he doesn't have all the context. And that like it becomes clear to me that he doesn't have that relationship. He doesn't have that sort of aha moment. I've described it sometimes, which I know it sounds crazy pants, but there's a hidden dimension of information and relationships that are happening in your life right and it's called the unconscious it's but it's not necessarily unconscious it's happening all the time it's just that you don't turn the light of your you know looking conscious mind and feelers into how it's actually working you know it really helps you know when you can sit with somebody else in safety and to take the actual moments to be pointed in the right direction for the for this type of like elucidation, this type of interaction to become apparent. So yeah, I think it's super tricky and maybe just sounds goofy. It's just no having no syntax, right? It's, you know, one plus two equals elephant or something. It like, it doesn't make sense until you hear in, right? Isn't it interesting that like, in order to, in order for parts work to be meaningful or impactful, you'd have to have some capacity for relationship. But it's as if that capacity for relationship has never been turned inward in a in a meaningful way, and so it's like you're using a set of skills that you've been honing in every mm-hmm. connection that you have, 
for your whole life. And it's like learning to apply that aspect of your being to yourself in a new way. Right. Super fascinating to me. I um I like to explain it to people because usually they can see it in others more easily than they can see it in themselves. And I'll say, have you ever gotten into an argument with someone <clears throat> and suddenly they're like they're it seems like they're a five-year-old or a six-year-old. And so what right. you're seeing is a part of them that is showing up that is kind of frozen in time. And that's the the maturity or the age of that part that's been developed and that you know is one aspect of them and so usually they're like oh yeah i've definitely seen that um so yeah and i like to me like i have and i there was like one distinct and it was it was uh somebody i know pretty decently whenever you get really mad like and it's just like a feeling i guess but it's like oh my god like he just seems like like a teenager, like a 12 year old or 10 or 11, 12, 13 year old, you know, just because of like kind of how pouty and weak, but there was like, uh, and this is probably even before this, but I was just like, man, he just seems like he's so, so much younger, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Um, there was something that I was going to go back to and talk about and it was, oh yeah. Um, it was actually desire. Um, because when it comes to like religion, um, I like to look at the world through, um, a lens. I like to look at, uh, healthy interdependence, independence and count and, um, counterdependence and codependence. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways, there are a lot of people that have an unhealthy relationship with God and religion and it's actually more of a codependent relationship rather than an empowered co-creative relationship where i'm waiting so i have this wounded feminine energy of i'm waiting for daddy god to give me stuff to help me out but i'm not gonna take actions and do the things that i need to and i i think that those relationships, like our relationships with our parents, our caregivers set us up for how we relate to authority or how we, we might relate to God. And so to have parents that have incomplete relationships with God and incomplete relationships with each other that are codependent and have, um, you know, distorted power dynamics and relationships, then we can end up with, um, you know, a skewed, a skewed relationship with our higher power as well. Um, and I'm just thinking about like how desire I think gets a really bad rap and how there's just like certain things that are kind of like compartmentalized when it comes to religion. Like it's almost like desire is an evil thing. Like desire is what got Adam and Eve in trouble. And then that it fucked everything up for everyone else. But, but truly if like that never happened, if desire had never happened in that way, we wouldn't have contrast period. There would be no like definition. There would be no like high or low there. There would be no, um, naked, (laughs) you know, there would be no clothes. There would be no naked. There would, it would just be like bliss all the time. And so it's almost like it had to be that way. Um, and I, 
I don't know. I'm just wondering like what some of your thoughts are when it comes to like desire and how to discern the difference between a desire that's more like ego-based or rooted in fear and then God-given desires, which I feel like are so important and so necessary to talk about and to navigate like from that relationship, like to really understand the difference of like what we're navigating here. So I'm not as familiar with like um, the, the concepts uh, with dependence and codependence. The, mm -hmm. the the description that you just gave makes sense to me, but I, I feel uh, less attuned to that insight. Um, I can but, give you a little brief like definition if you'd like. Well, or give you me just wreck. a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just just that. Uh, uh, what do you call this? The the the, the, the theory of, of emotional development happening through relationships. I'm dropping the key word here. Uh, that our emotional kind of response curves are modeled on uh, through our primary relationships. Attachment is what I'm thinking oh. about. Mm -hmm. So atta attachment theory of emotional development. And from that school of thought, I'm somewhat familiar with how like you can have weird triangulation in families, right? Yeah. Uh, and you can have weird, weird is not a, <laughs> a, a <laughs> clinical word. You mean like unhealthy. Thank you. A suboptimal you operation. Have, yeah, suboptimal. There you go. <laughs> so you can have sub, you can have traumatic and, and, and unhealthy uh, kind of uh, attachment. Um, so from that world, I would be familiar with some of those dynamics. Uh, but, but your question about like, uh, the role of desire, uh, actually, uh, St. Augustine, who is a, a hero of mine would say that like <laughs> desire is fundamental to our relationship with God, that God moves and forms, uh, desires that uh, uh, there's a whole school of thought that like uh, thoughts, feelings, and desires are like the fundamental movements of the heart uh, in the interior life. And uh, the desire for union with God and with others, it's like central to what we've been talking about here, right? Connection, the, the importance of, of connection and relationship. Uh, but beyond that i guess i would have to i would have to reflect on that more but to your point about like can people have uh codependent relationships with god i 100 percent believe that that is a common challenge for people mm -hmm. in their relationship with god absolutely uh could you yeah could you expand on some of those dynamics of healthy, healthy interdependence and unhealthy codependence. Yeah. Like I'm familiar with, with like from the 12 step world, I'm familiar with like people mm -hmm. using the term in this sort of popular sense of like, uh, I, <laughs> a spouse who supplies their 
addict spouse with, uh, you know, the means of continuing their addiction, uh, that there can be a, an unhealthy codependence with the, uh, with like the, the, the spouse who's not addicted, like appreciates the attention that they get when they supply. Mm. And there gets to be this feedback loop that's, that's destructive. Right. Yeah. So the way that I would describe like, um, like a simple way of describing codependence is really like a self-protective or co-protective relationship. Like it's, um, it's like acting in a certain way to control an outcome so that the cons like consequences are avoided. So it's almost like, um, which, which gets kind of interesting when you talk about codependence and God, because you think like, how can God be involved in codependence? Well, it's because God isn't, um, actively engaged in the codependence. It's like the person that is codependent has a way of, um, relating to others in a codependent manner. And then that's overlaid onto God. So I'm trying to explain this like more clearly, but it, it could be something like if I perform in a certain way that might be pleasing to God. And then that means I'll get the things that I want. Right. And I'm a good girl or I'm a good boy for sure. Yeah. Um, or that means like, yeah. I don't need to do anything. I just need to pray. And if I pray, that makes everything okay. And like, I'm, and like, also instead of there being an actual relationship, it's almost like all of the power and the focus is solely on God. And instead of taking any personal responsibility for one, one's own life, instead of acknowledging that God gave us certain gifts and skills and desires and ways to commune and also like take action in the world. Like there's, there's, um, a need for us to, um, like as co-creators, cause like we're here on this physical plane, like we got to do things <laughs> like there needs to be, um, like what would they say? Like the, the tree that bears fruit, like we must bear fruit. And so Absolutely. I think there's a lot of people that can get comfortable and, and show up to church, but they're not, they're not leaning into the expansion that God is calling them forth. So their um, relationships with their spouses and kids are also codependent where they feel resentment around a child's addiction and that child really not improving themselves, but they're also bought into the narrative that that child is helpless to improve or change their lot. And so there's, it's almost like a fundamental um, inability to actually truly trust that God will support um, their actions if they were to make moves in the world. So it's just like a, it's like a, a fearful position to be in. Yeah. Um, so a nice, really simple. Yeah really simple practical way that I see this is like, uh, uh, people sometimes, uh, when they're trying to make a decision, should I take this job? They sometimes feel as if, uh, if, if, if they pray, right, they'll get a clear sign from God. I'll have peace in my heart. I will, 
see the signs that this is clearly the optimal choice and, and they don't see, they sort of miss, uh, yeah, miss some of the dynamics of making choices. Have you ever heard the term like the, the tyranny of uh, tyranny of choice, right? That like, if you have, if you have to choose between an obviously good and an obviously inferior, it's really easy to feel good about your choice. Mm -hmm. You go to the closet, you find something that fits and is appropriate for the climate. And you find something that fits, but it's got a big hole in it. It's like, oh, I'm going to wear the thing. You feel great. I've got what I need. You move on with your life. You go to the store and you need shoes and there's 15 shoes in your color and size. It's like, well, now I've got to get into the minutia of what could be, what could lead to the optimal choice. And it can be overwhelming. Sometimes when, uh, in, uh, in attempting to discern God's will, sometimes people will feel like if I pray right, I'll get the clearest signs, I'll have the peace. Uh, but classically, uh, the Catholic attitude towards discernment and doing God's will would be like, yeah, you pray and have a relationship with God. You consult with family, friends, people that you trust, and you practice deciding and in the use of the will in like choosing the good and trying to go forward and uh, do the thing, you get exercise in uh, the, the ability that you have for, for doing and that, uh, yeah, that there are absolutely dynamics like that where uh, uh, people can people can get into those kinds of relationships with God where they feel as if uh, when they don't get the signs that they expect to get, they feel as if they've done something wrong. They've not prayed right. They've got to pray more intensely for longer. They've got to find the right insight from the right authority to confirm and things like this. Yeah. So it, make, it makes me sure. think about uh, the idea of like God made me as a spirit, as a being, that I have to actually uh, interact with and, and to be like in my ego, in my personal, in my selfhood, right? Um, growing up, making decisions for me was a little bit weird because I felt trapped between if I had some sort of two roads to go on that I knew didn't matter which one I choose, I would hate that one, which felt like sort of a tyranny, right? Um, but I've actually I've heard from other sources, and I, I don't know, I can't bring it up right now, that when you want to get good at deciding, it's actually to take responsibility. It's like bring up your choices, like go through them in a, like a timely manner and then make your choice, get decisive because it's through that practicing of that mechanism that where it starts to, you start to feel some sort of, uh, some sort of actual power in there that like you have, you have a, like a throughput through that. Right. Cause I think if you just stop and it could be, <laughs> if you just stop and you, and then you, uh, are sort of like relinquishing, relinquishing your power in sort of a codependent way to somebody else, you know, that's not good boundaries and that's not a good sort of practice of selfhood, you know? I also think in some decisions, like God doesn't care whether you get the burrito or the chicken wrap, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like, what, like, 
feel into the desire like what's more generative like what's exciting what you know what feels good but then i feel like we get into this tricky place where it's like oh pleasure is bad desire is bad you know and then it's like but i i feel like that cuts our our compass off completely you know if we're not discerning emotion and we're not we're not paying attention to desire then what are what are we doing you know, that's what I'm waiting, I'm like, we're waiting for a, a helicopter, Angela. <laughs> that's a good topic. It's, it's, uh, touches on some profound stuff. I also feel it's like, I don't know. It's, but I think the, the way that it's elucidated, right. Which is something that we talked about is into beginning to pay attention to the, uh, the emotional energies. I mean, I don't know what to call them. The emotional mechanisms, the emotional places that are moving around, right? Because I know that it was definitely some of my parts and pieces and my deep emotional ways that I see the world that led me to that, uh, you know, uh, led me to that sort of rock in a hard place of having two choices and knowing no matter which one I chose, I would hate which way I went or I would regret it, you know? Like that is a downstream effect of a deep emotional wound and then its consequences happening, you know? And so like, I, you know, this is one of the questions I wanted to sort of pose to you. I've been on my contemplative walks thinking about, um, so, you know, okay, so this is it. What we are fundamentally consciousness. So I think about what consciousness is as a human being, you know? I am not my hands. You can cut off my hands and I am still here, right? So we just like ipso facto, we start removing parts of my body. Am I still there? Well, I'm all still there, right? Well, then snap my fingers and your body's gone. Am I still there? I mean, I guess. Okay, now we're going to get rid of the thoughts. So the thoughts gone. Okay, thoughts are leaving me. I am not my thoughts either. Um, so then I think about like all these internal parts and pieces that... Um, the way that I sort of uh, visualize it or it came to me when I finally met them is that I came across a body of water, emotional water inside of me that I uh, sort of uh, visualize as a great lake. Here is this vast amount of energy that I had not dealt with. There was just all this energy held back, right? So I think about the amount of consciousness or like being that is involved in managing and keeping that entire system suppressed or afloat or dammed up or whatever it is, right? So then I think about the work that I have done to sort of untangle these types of Gordian knots, right? That the movement or the flow of time and energy through my being becomes more fluid. It comes through more. And so that in that stream becoming wider and open because it's not so tied up when all these mechanisms of, of, of uh, disturbance that my light actually shines brighter. So it, like my capital L self gets bigger, like I'm retrieving and rescuing parts of myself, you know. Do you find that in the work that you've done, in the uh, IFS work that you've done, in the uh, uh, sort of... Um, therapy work that you've done that your capital s self the you that exists the good generative god-given uh gift that you are has that become 
more? Has it become bigger? Has it grown? Yeah, I definitely identify with that that image of like rescuing parts. Like a, a particular part comes right to mind of like or a particular example of going through IFS steps and and uh, retrieving exiles, where I I came to an appreciation of uh, something that happened to me when I was, you know, fifteen, and uh, I saw it in a totally new light, and uh, I. It's a very joyful experience of like appreciating that there was strength and uh, resilience in this part of me that I had never appreciated before. And so to like receive that part and to take note of that resilience and strength to 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 show appreciation for it and, and love for that part of myself, that it's a very apt description. It is like it feels expansive. It does feel like, oh, my understanding of the self that I am is broadening. That's, that's, uh, I would definitely say that my experience, uh, or matches that, or, or, uh, that feels very relatable what you're saying. Do you think that your capacities to live your life in the fashion that you do has expanded because of the work that you've done internally? Yeah, so I would say uh, I, d I started off this description by saying that uh, I was bumping into the limits of my resources. And that's what one of the things that inspired me to say, like, I need some help. I need somebody to help me to navigate this because I feel like where the way that I'm going is just not sustainable. And I feel like uh, after the, the years of ongoing work and, and development, uh, I do feel like my resources or are more supple. There's a there's a there's a greater sense of being able to uh, not just uh, both like know my limitations and be more <laughs> kind to myself about like oh I I, I need to set a boundary here and that's actually going to help the whole system function better. Uh, so not only like acknowledging limitations has gotten like easier, but also like and a deeper appreciation for the, the gifts and experiences and uh, resources that I have uh, in myself and in others uh, has expanded. And for sure that has made me more resilient over the years. Super thankful for that. Do you still have bad days? For sure. A thousand percent. <laughs> and are those bad days worse now that you like feel and know more? Uh, I, I sometimes am, am, am capable of feeling like I should have been able to manage that. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes that'll sort of like stick me in the side. Yeah. But for the most part, I feel like, I do better at like working with who I am, you know, uh, rather than like regretting what I am not or can't or have a hard time doing. You know, certainly still have bad days. You know, when you were talking about having the psychological evaluation, when you yeah. 
was that like when you began like part of part of my application process for when i went into studies for the priesthood yeah so I, that's it, really it, fascinating to me um because i don't know if they do that with the baptists i feel like they would benefit oh. greatly from that <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if if in fact they did um but it's funny how even though they've been doing this for decades, um, all the students universally received it as, with suspicion. Like, gosh, you, I heard, you know, how did the psychological evaluation go for you? Well, mm. uh, you know, I said this or that thing. At least in my day, this is already, you know, so 2005 is when I started. This is already a few years ago. Uh, in my day, among my peers, it was very common to sort of mock and have suspicion for mm. uh, the psychological evaluation process and that element in our annual evaluations. So that that program does pretty rigorous evaluation every year, including uh, uh, a report from a staff psychologist in the program. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that that was often kind of looked down upon, but, mm. but I have friends who are in, who are helping to run those programs now and their perspective is very different and much more integrating. Like I said, uh, that conversation that I had with a friend a couple of weeks ago about at the time I, I understood the interior struggles like interior conflict and, times of being sad or times of being overstressed or being anxious. I understood that at the time as like a thing to manage, get rid of, so I could go back mm -hmm. to being a successful student and a member of the community and a part of the parish that I was assigned to or whatever. But now I would say uh, there's much more openness to like, no, this, this interior life stuff, opening this up to deeper self-understanding the help of your peers the help of your former formators your those who are teaching you uh is actually a really good desirable thing to do yeah i do think it's normal for people to be like i don't want to be analyzed or or maybe to be afraid of what's going to come up or that being bad or shameful but it's so interesting, like with internal family systems, like it's my favorite, favorite thing that he says that it's like, it is like Jesus going to the exiles. And it's like, what better way to be able to witness to other people about like the compassion and curiosity of God about us than yeah, to be able to sweet. do that to your own parts and, yeah. and like offer um, you know, offer salvation or offer um, being able to release those burdens. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a pretty deep uh, uh, harmony between like, if, if you're, if you're able to receive mercy, um, mm -hmm. you're going to be that much more well-equipped to show mercy. And, uh, yeah, if, if you're able to experience, uh, and show compassionate 
compassion and curiosity to yourself. Uh, the, the capacity for that interiorly and in relationship, it seems like those would rise and fall together. Yeah. One of the dynamics, this was in a podcast I saw the other day, and they were talking about um, they had retreats where they got together and uh, had emotional confrontations. It was, you know, an interesting sort of modality that they use. Uh, but they would ask people to talk about, like, the comment was that if you ask people, in at least in these circles anyway, to talk about, like, sort of their deep, uh, like, their deep wounds or the things they're very deeply guilty of, that they could do it all day long, right? That was, that, that was actually easy for them to access. But if you had to ask some people talk about what their gifts are, about, about things that they are good at, you know, that that's where people really sort of like uh, get like uh, get crunched up and they can't like uh, access that type of stuff, you know? And that, that, that brings me to the sort of that, like uh, uh, just that idea that like if you can allow yourself uh, mercy or grace and understand like how that works, you know, I mean, deeply, then I think that it goes and it has the ability to flow outward too, you know? Oh, for sure. Well, right on. Well, I think I did. Oh, and I had one more question. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is when people come to you with like issues, like what do you think the most common kind of like root of that issue is when they're coming to you for guidance? Like, what are they looking for? Uh, let me think about that for a second. Well, I think about, you know, it's like, it's gotta be like a spectrum of things. Well, you know, maybe in some cases it's like triangulation. Like I want you to be on my side. <laughs> But, but maybe they're like, I'm guessing like a sense of relief or, um, you know, but yeah, I'm just wondering if there's like, if you see themes around like what people will come to you for and maybe like an absence of potentially like things that they won't come to you for, you know, which I think is equally interesting. Right. Cause like, you know, asking for help is very vulnerable. Um, especially, sure. you know, in the Catholic church when there's this like, uh, idea of like, um, confession and uh, yeah. absolution and stuff and it can be very um you know embarrassing or shameful or oh no what's he gonna think if i ask you know if i yeah uh i guess i know that uh you know i first of all i'm not a, a mental health care professional right i don't have a shingle out for yeah. Like, here's a list of kinds of things that you might consult me on. Uh, so I know I'm getting the filter of like, you know, I, I have a certain status in the community and uh, people who are more, feel more connected and comfortable with the church feel more comfortable talking to me. And so uh, I know that that, uh, that that puts sort of a, you know, a certain frame on the kind of things that people will talk to me about. But given that, uh, you know, people are people. Uh, gosh, it just seems like uh, there's a little bit of everything 
yeah i have i haven't put too much thought into like what kind of categories would do i typically see i guess i i, I tend to think of uh uh i tend to think that i can be pretty open to kind of whatever comes with an attitude of like uh i'm i'd be happy to listen you know practice really simple empathy and uh be try and be compassionate and curious and uh i get sort of a pass because i guess i feel like i have a, a pretty clear sense of what my lanes are right there's there's stuff that i'm going to refer on there's stuff that i can say like well i you know here's some ideas or uh, what have you learned about that uh, challenge so far? Uh, and with a particular person, somebody comes to me with uh, addiction stuff of some form or another. Uh, there's, uh, you know, I'd love to dive into that that question of where that comes from. Um, and uh, I've had the experience, for example, I get to, I have this uh, group of guys that gets together that uh, just is like a little prayer support group for addicts, and uh, we're not a we're not a twelve step group. We're not. I'm I'm not a mental health care professional. They're convening, and I'm there to support them. And uh, that came about because there was several different people coming to me and talking about the same kinds of issues, and. Uh, I had heard about this format of uh, coming together for transparency, accountability, and community, mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that, like, in that in that community, there's that saying of like the opposite of addiction is not uh, sobriety, but the opposite of addiction is like healthy connection, connection. right? Connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, because these individuals were all talking to me about similar topics, I just said, "Well." Uh, would you be interested? And, uh, uh, you know, you have to make your own decision and we're going to start a group. And this is, a, this is a resource that would be available for guys who would want to come. And that group's been going for a couple years now. And those guys have experienced a ton of growth. And, uh, but in that, if somebody were to come talk to me about addiction, like I feel pretty comfortable taking all different kinds of uh, inquiries because I, I feel like I have uh, the ability to work with them in a prayerful, helpful, helpful way, hopefully, or I can, there's great resources of counselors in our community and there's other resources like groups, uh, Yeah, I just feel like uh, trying to get back to your question about themes or uh, commonalities. And I I guess I feel like there's all kinds of different stuff that comes, but uh, I get to kind of uh, make an offer of certain kinds of things. And if I can be helpful to somebody, great. If not, hopefully I can connect them with the resource. So you're kind of quarterbacking, and your main outlet is God on the whiteout. 
that's right dude <laughs> yeah no like uh i definitely am coming with that worldview like front and center like here's how i understand things uh and uh, if somebody's there great we can engage in that and if somebody's not like it's not necessarily a problem but i'm definitely starting off with that as a as a presupposition word got, got anything else angela i desperately want to talk about exorcism but <laughs> <laughs> so there is uh, like i've asked you this question but there is somebody on staff in the diocese who deals with that right yeah there's this there's somebody on staff in every diocese who has that responsibility to uh, uh respond to those inquiries when they come and they do come regularly 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 yeah i'm not going to say full-blown exorcism is like an, a weekly activity but there's uh things that people will uh, uh, seek intervention for and will go through a process of diagnosis right and uh yeah that that's like that's thought of as an responsibility that is ongoing in every territory in the country in the world is there a uh doctrinal exorcism exorcism uh scripture or something or a book or a like doctrinal doctrinal yeah there is a uh there is yes the short answer is yes there is what's do you know the name of that book yeah i mean it, it would take you five minutes to find it on google it's not okay. super secret right the uh the yeah okay the right of exorcism is what it's called the right so yeah, it's, the, not, it's not a sacrament it's a right what are yeah. other, what are other catholic rights uh the right of baptism the right of uh okay blessing a house a right just means it's just a category for like this is the official kind of order of service when you're doing this thing right and there is one of those for exorcism Whoa. and uh yeah it's i, I, I would say a full-blown exorcism I don't, I, I don't know how common it is because i'm not involved in you're that, not in on, that kind you're of, not on the ghostbusters I'm not on the ghostbusters <laughs> team and uh when that stuff kind of when that kind of stuff comes up like our our, our ordinary response is like um ordinary response is like relationship with god trust in god right. the prayer of the our father uh that jesus taught us uh talks about delivering us from evil we look right. to god as a father who is good who provides for his children and who has absolute authority over everything Amen. and uh we can uh yeah the the ordinary you always start with the ordinary right. the, the analogy that i've sometimes used is like if you have a stomach ache you don't start with chemotherapy chop the legs off first <laughs> <laughs> you start by like asking yeah. about what did you eat yesterday you know right. yeah there's a whole diagnostic process before you get into extraordinary interventions you do the ordinary interventions and you develop a relationship and you try and help a person uh yeah take 
take ordinary steps. And uh, yeah, it happens regularly that the <laughs> that the Ghostbusters would do some diagnostic steps, and they would yeah. say, uh, "Here's uh, here's how we would understand that this is clearly not a supernatural phenomenon, and here's a really qualified mental health care professional who can help you right. address this." Right. Uh, That's what I was wondering. Yeah, is that is they're going through that and my curiosity was like sometimes like mental illness can really present as you know right. that and um For it sure. makes me think of um the way of the psychonaut that we were watching nick the um, documentary about stan groff and he talks about um administering i think it's lsd to this woman who had like a lot of trauma and then he spoke about at one point she shifted into this like demonic voice and they said it was like really scary. And she was looking at them with like, looked like she wanted to kill them. And he said, the creepy thing was, is she knew all kinds of stuff about them that she couldn't have known. And his reaction to that was to be like, okay, like something's come through. But his response to that was to offer this like solid um, compassion and curiosity. And then in the face of that, like it didn't, with you know it, it wasn't able to continue yeah. and then they decided not to tell her about it later that it came up they were like well we just decided not to mention that you yeah, know essentially he met the darkness with love and compassion and that was right that was enough to uh you know <clears throat> but to me it was like the story was just a, a testament to the power of compassion and to the power of you know, love, which makes me think about the power of God's love, you know, and about how those things mm -hmm. actually that redemption and God's love and that type of, you know, healing and energy actually has real power to it. You know? Which is interesting because any movie that's about like demons and the church, like any time there's like <laughs> shenanigans going on, it's like <laughs> there's real fear or there's almost like the absence of God. If you notice, it's like there's there's no like trust or faith. And then there's like, oh, no, this demon is like more powerful. And it's like, well, because they're so afraid that they're not um you know, they're not anchored in God's love. So it makes sense. Yeah, that would be really scary. Hmm. Anyway. Do you have any questions, brother? Uh, so you, you mentioned that you were into how many episodes now? This is 19. 19. That's 19. sweet. Yeah. Do you have a sense of like, uh, yeah, how, uh, do you have like a sense of like, what is, what is your mission here? How do you express like, well, I guess you were saying it at the top of the show. Um, yeah, I was dispelling stigma. stigma and enigma. Yeah. Removing so, the stigma and enigma around the emotional journey. So my little yeah. tirade about like the actual operating between consciousness, thought, uh, some scars, this deep emotional stuff, you know, it's about, to me, yeah. it's about more, reflecting and being in and talking about and living through that as a more conscious piece of life and about how yeah. it ties into world. So it's just essentially like framing, uh, it's like framing and talking about and dealing with the different situational parts and pieces of life with this included part of these deep emotional 
pieces that do play yeah. an integral role in how life unfolds moment by moment, you know? And it's a lot of it is relational stuff, personal relationship with self, but, it, you know, but it's, it, it really touches on everything. Every single aspect of life has a deep connection down into these places that need alignment, right? They need consciousness. They need love uh, to, to actually, you know, uh, open up, you know, that power that's, possible that's possible that the, the possibilities that, that exist inside of you you know because i i think that like for me anyway uh it's being very locked down you know if all the emotions are it's just ties up so much of my s capital s self right that it's just all locked down in this fight you know my mantra you know before coming into deep relationship with myself is that life is a grind it's only a grind i am just gonna white knuckle it you know, and just fight and nobody's coming and it's just going to be a fight the whole time until I'm dead. Yeah. And I think that that is out, that's out there. That's out there in the zeitgeist. That's out there in the polis, you know, that's, that's among human beings. And I think that it is part of our, uh, how the future is going to unfold is that these, these deep relationships, these deep ways that we are formed uh, is going to come more into light come more into the consciousness of people and uh, be, you know, be taken care of, you know. I just think that, I don't know, I think it's important. And that that's the, that's my personal vision of the goal. Uh, yeah, we want to normalize, like, feeling and kind of, like, the mess that one can get into just starting to explore these things. But, like, we want to introduce... Um, compassion and awareness around like the entire emotional journey like into more wholeness and expansion and connection with self and of course god yeah. that's sweet so i appreciate uh, about that that like maybe a few years ago i would have thought of this journey as primarily one about like <laughs> trying to manage something that was uh, a challenge right again this image of like thinking of interior conflict as like something I had to manage, set aside and get over so that I could get on with life. Yeah, but mostly annoying. Mostly Which... obnoxious, yeah. And now I would have a much better sense of like, oh no, this is like addressing this, bringing this to light uh, is life-giving and it's, it's, uh, it's good. It helps me to be more than I, you know, was and, uh, helps me to be more effective in what I want to do too. Right. So I appreciate that like expanded vision of where this, where this, what this is directed towards. That's sweet. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, brother, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate your time and your attention. Really nice and your to care. meet you, Greg. Yeah. Likewise, Angela. Godspeed to both of you. It's, it's a super cool project. I hope it uh, continues to go well. Thank you. Righteous. Okay. So emotional. All right, everyone. Thanks 19. for listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my mouse died. We'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Out.